Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, ever merciful. All distinguished guests, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessing of Allah be upon you all. <clears throat> First of all, I would like to take this opportunity to thank all of you for attending today's event. Our local Ahmadis or Ahmadi officials here in, in Canada have requested that I speak today about the means and ways to establish world peace. Certainly, everyone appreciates that the world stands in great need of peace and harmony. Yet, despite comprehending this, it seems as though people are unwilling to take the necessary steps to achieve it. It is very easy to speak about striving for peace, but in reality, the efforts being made by the, in this regard are nowhere near enough. Regrettably, in many parts of the world, far greater priority is being given either directly or indirectly towards asserting dominance and supremacy over others and satisfying a craving for power and authority. Upon hearing this, some of you may question what a Muslim leader can say about establishing world peace. Given that the disorder in today's world revolves primarily around Muslim countries or so-called Islamic groups. Indeed, in the interests of fairness and balance, I cannot deny the fact that today's conflicts and wars do indeed center upon certain Muslim countries. Undoubtedly, the evil acts of certain so-called Islamic groups has caused for fear and panic to spread in the non-Muslim world. People in the West are becoming increasingly frightened of Islam and consider it to be a threat to their civilization and way of life. Consequently, I understand if some of you consider it a strange paradox that a Muslim leader is here to talk about developing world peace. However, before casting judgment, it is essential that people are familiar with Islam's true teachings. No one should assume that the acts of extremists or terrorists are in accordance with Islam. The Islam that I know and practice is based upon the teachings of the Holy Quran, the most sacred and holy book for all Muslims, and upon the life and teachings of the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him. Therefore, in the time available, 
It is these original Islamic teachings that I will present so that you can make an informed judgment about whether Islam does promote violence and deviant or whether it is a religion that fosters tolerance and mutual respect throughout society. First of all, I will mention a golden principle for establishing peace that is enshrined in chapter 16, verse 91 of the Holy Quran, where Allah the Almighty says, Verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred. Hence, the Quran does not only call upon Muslims to be fair and just, but rather has established a far higher standard of treating others. Where Allah the Almighty says, giving like kindred, He requires a believer to favor others and so always desire the very best for them. It requires Muslims to treat all other people like their close family members. It obliges that they strive to love others without any desire for reward, just as a mother mother selflessly loves her child. Furthermore, the Quran does not say that a Muslim should treat only their fellow Muslims in this way. Rather, it says that they should love others and this includes Muslims and non-Muslims alike. Yet, when we see the state of certain Muslim countries today, it is clear that this Islamic teaching has been completely ignored. Many Muslim governments have failed to fulfill the rights of their people, and this has led to long-term and deeply held frustration developing amongst the people. As a result, rebel and terrorist groups have formed, and all parties have been guilty of inflicting the most horrendous acts of cruelty. Previously successful nations have been torn apart and immersed in calamitous civil wars. All of this conflict and warfare is based upon the fact that the majority of Muslims have forgotten the true teachings of their religion and are failing to fulfill the rights of one another. Rather than manifesting justice and integrity, they are motivated solely by greed and a desire for power. Tragically, the end result is that peace is being eroded as restlessness entrenches itself amongst the masses. In terms of the standards of justice that Islam advocates, in chapter 4, verse 136 of the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice and be witness for Allah, even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred. Whether he be rich or poor, 
Allah is more regardful of them both than you are. Therefore, then says, therefore follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is well aware of what you do. This verse demonstrates the, the fact that Islam's teachings are never cruel nor unjust. Rather, they are based upon unparalleled standards of fairness, wherein the Quran states that a person should be ready to testify against himself or his loved ones in order to uphold the truth. It is very easy to say that I am ready to speak against myself. However, to practically live up, uh, live up to this uh, standard is incredibly difficult. Yet, this is the target and challenge that Allah the Almighty has laid down to the Muslims, wherein he has said that true justice cannot transpire until a person willing to set, uh, to set aside all personal interests. If practiced, this unique principle is the means of establishing peace, not just in Muslim countries, but in every village, every town, every city, and in every nation of the world. Whilst the commonly alleged, uh, it is commonly alleged that Islam promotes extremism, such allegations are based upon ignorance and a lack of understanding of its true teachings. A person who reflects and ponders upon Islam's teachings in a fair way will see that they are diametrically opposed to all forms of cruelty, prejudice, and evil. Islam lays the foundation for peace at every level of society. And this includes the relationship between nations themselves. Hence, in chapter 49, verse 10, Allah the Almighty says, and if two parties of believers fight against each other, make peace between them. Then if after that, one of them transgresses against the other, fight the party that transgresses until it returns to the command of Allah. Then, if it returns, make peace between them with equity and act justly. Verily, Allah loves the just. In this verse, Allah has stated that if two parties or nations are in a state of conflict, then their neighbors and allies should seek to bring about reconciliation. If peace cannot be established through dialogue, then the other nations should unite against whosoever is perpetrating injustice and use force to stop them. I personally believe that this outstanding Quranic principle is not just 
of value to Muslims, but if acted upon by the United Nations and by the major powers of the world, would prove a means of stabilizing the world and developing sustain, uh, sustainable peace. However, neither Muslim countries nor non-Muslim countries are seeking peace along these lines. For instance, following both the First World War and the Second World War, the principle of mediation and conflict resolution was not observed, and this led to grievances between nations that have simmered away ever since. Therefore, any efforts that were made to curb the growth of opposing blocs and alliances and to unify the world proved futile and unsuccessful. This is not a secret or something new that I am saying. Rather, in recent years, a, a number of commentators and columnists have openly criticized organizations tasked with maintaining the world's peace and security. Primarily, the United Nations and uh, said that they have failed to their objectives because of an inherent lack of fairness. Furthermore, in order to establish a just society, chapter 5, verse 9 of the Holy Quran states, O ye who believe, be steadfast in cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is near, that is nearer to righteousness, and fear Allah, surely Allah is aware of what you do. This verse states that a Muslim is duty-bound to act fairly even with, this greatest, uh, with his greatest enemy and that hostility or enmity must never lead a person towards seeking revenge. Upon hearing all of this, some of you may query that if these really are Islam's teachings and if it, uh, it truly is a religion of peace and justice, then how is it that the concept of warfare and jihad became associated with Muslims? To answer this question, I shall again refer to the Quran itself. History bears witness to the fact that the following is claim uh, of prophethood, the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, and his early followers were subjected to 13 years of re uh, relentless cruelty and bitter persecution in the city of Mecca. Ultimately, they were forced to migrate to the city of Medina in order to seek respite. However, the non-Muslims of Mecca still did not let them live in peace, but pursued them to Medina and waged war upon them. It was then and only then that Allah the Almighty permitted the Muslims to fight back for the very first time.
The permission for defensive war was given in chapter 22, verse 40 of the Holy Quran, which states, permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made because they have been wronged and Allah indeed has power to help them. In the, in the subsequent verse, Allah the Almighty further clarified and elaborated this matter. Thus, chapter 22, verse 41 says, those who have been driven out of from their, uh, their homes unjustly only because they said, our Lord is Allah. And if Allah did not repel some men by means of others, they would surely have been pulled down cloisters and churches and synagogues and mosques wherein the name of Allah is oft commemorated and Allah will surely help one who helps him. Allah is indeed powerful, mighty. This verse stipulates the permission to fight back was not granted to the Muslims because of the cruel, uh, cruelty they faced. Rather, they were instructed to fight back in order to safeguard the wider society and to def uh, defend the rights of all people to profess their faith and beliefs freely and without fear. It is a great manifestation of the enlightened teachings of Islam that the Quran did not grant the Muslims permission to fight in order to protect them, uh, protect Islam, or out of a fear that all mosques would be demolished. Rather, permission was granted to protect all religious religions and all places of worship, whether churches, temples, synagogues, mosques, or any others. Thus, those early Muslims did not risk their lives to defend themselves, but to shield mankind itself and to uphold the universal values of freedom of conscience and belief. Those Muslims risked their lives in order to push back against the hand of oppression, uh, oppression that sought to destroy the peace of the world. Moreover, Islamic history bears witness to the fact that where such defensive wars did take place, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, laid down extremely strict rules of engagement to ensure that the Muslim armies perpetrated no cruelty. He specifically instructed that churches, synagogues, temples, and all other places of worship were never to be targeted. Similarly, Muslims were not, to, not permitted to attack priests, rabbis, or any religious leaders. Nor were women, children, or the elderly ever to be harmed, and nor were crops or trees to be destroyed. It is a historical fact that Prophet of Islam, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, his four rightly guided successors, and thereafter those Muslim rulers 
who followed Islam's true teachings always honored and protected the sanctity of all places of worship and of all religions. It indeed remains obligatory upon all the Muslims to abide by such principles because chapter 2 verse 191 of the Holy Quran states and fight in the cause of Allah against those who fight against you but do not transgress. Surely Allah loves not the transgressors. This very clear and categorical instruction, instruction lays down the conditions for warfare in Islam. It requires that Muslims must never themselves wage war or take aggressive measures. Thus, those who claim that Islam permits belligerence or a violent jihad are completely misguided. Furthermore, chapter 8, verse 62 of the Holy Quran states that Muslims must be ready to grasp hold of all opportunities for peace and reconciliation, regardless of circumstances. In, the, in this verse, Allah the Almighty states, and if they incline towards peace, incline thou also towards it, and put thy trust in Allah. Surely it is he who is all-hearing, all-knowing. This means that a Muslim should always pursue every possible pathway to peace. For example, even though an, an uh, appeal for a ceasefire may simply be a military tactic in order to buy some time to regroup or to prepare for further aggressive assaults, thus in chapter 8, verse 63 of the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, and if they intend to deceive thee, then surely Allah is sufficient for thee. He it is who has strengthened thee with his help and with the, with the believers. Consequently, even if there is a fear of, fear that one's opponent may be engaged in deception, a Muslim has been told to set aside such fears and to place his trust in the hands of God Almighty. In light of all that I have presented, can it still, still be suggested that Islam is an extremist and violent religion? Quite clearly, the answer to this is no. Rather, it has been clearly proven that if today's Muslims are perpetrating brutalities and conducting unspeakable acts, then they are violent, violating Islam's teachings. Therefore, how could it ever be permissible for Muslims to enter foreign lands to engage in callous murder and ruthless savagery? Moving forward, while some people may accept that Islam's teachings are peaceful, they may question whether such teachings were actually practiced and implemented during the time of the Holy Prophet. Peace and the blessing of Allah be upon him. In this respect, you do not have to take my words for it. Rather, see 
what non-Muslim historians and Orientalists who carefully studied the era of the founder of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah upon him, have to say about him and his companions. For example, Stanley Poole, a British Orientalist and archaeologist who was the prof also a professor of Arabic studies at Dublin University, wrote about the conduct of the Holy Prophet of Islam following his victorious return to his hometown of Mecca after years of persecution. <laughs> professor Stanley Poole wrote, the day of Muhammad's peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, greatest triumph over his enemies was also the day of his grandest victory over himself. He freely forgave the crash all the years of sorrow and cruel scorn, their, uh, scorn they had inflicted on him. And he gave an amnesty to the whole population of Makkah. The army followed his example and entered quietly and peaceably. No house was robbed, no woman insulted. It was thus that Muhammad entered against his native city, again his native city, through all the annal of conquests. There is no triumphant entry comparable to this one. Table talk of the Prophet Muhammad published in London in 1882. Thus, this very writer testifies to the fact that at the time of triumph, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, did not seek glory and nor did he seek vengeance against those who had tormented him and his followers. Rather, his response was to grant forgiveness to each and all alike. Therefore, let me again make it categorically clear that those who conduct terrorism or extremism are directly contravening the teachings of the Holy Quran and the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him. Where the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, forgave those who had tortured him and his loved ones, the so-called Muslims of today are the people who are persecuting and mercilessly killing innocent individuals. Nonetheless, it is also pertinent to mention that the wars being fought in the Muslim world today are being fueled, whether overtly or covertly, from outside of the region. None of the Muslim governments, rebel groups, and terrorist organizations have the capability to manufacture the array of extremely destructive and sophisticated weapons that they are using. Thus, the vast majority of the weapons being used in countries like Syria and Iraq are imported from abroad. And so, the nations that are manufacturing such lethal weapons 
and trading with Muslim states must also take their share of responsibility for today's disorder. Many analysts and experts have proven beyond, beyond doubt that the weapons being used by the terrorist groups, Daesh, and by other rebel or extremist groups were originally produced in the West or in Eastern Europe. Consequently, instead of bringing an end to the wars plaguing the Muslim world, the major powers are actually further igniting them. Rather than prioritizing peace, they have continually sought to influence and even profit from warfare. Whenever civil wars or conflict have erupted in Muslim countries, it would have been far better if only the neighboring countries had intervened and had undertaken the responsibility of restoring peace to their region. Yet, the foreign policies and business interests of the major powers dictated otherwise. For example, a number of Western nations have continued to sell billions of dollars worth of heavy weaponry to Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that these, those very weapons are being used to inflict devastating cruelties upon the very small Arab nation of Yemen. The indiscriminate firing and bombardment is destroying millions of lives, raising towns and cities, and resulting in the deaths of thousands of the entirely blameless people. Even places of refuge, such as hospital, have also been targeted. The same is true in Syria and Iraq, where the doctors and nurses who have bravely taken on the mantle of trying to help the victims of those wars have themselves been attacked. Likewise, places of worship are being routinely targeted, as are multi-story residential buildings in which innocent women and children are being killed. How can any of this be justified? How can it be tolerated in this day and age? And what is the end result of such unjust policies? It is that the youth of those nations are being radicalized. Having lost all hopes for their own futures, they are reacting by perpetrating horrific acts of terrorism in the West against those nations that they believe have played a leading hand in their misery. Hence, I say again that the world stands in urgent need of peace. Today is being commemorated as Remembrance Day here in Canada and also in many other parts of the world. And if we look back to the Second World War, we see how around 70 million people lost their lives. Even after the passing of many decades, 
when a person reflects upon the destruction and brutalities that took place, it sends a shiver, upon, uh, shiver up once again. That fateful war taught us that modern day warfare is not aligned to religion, but is a culminating of greed, culmination of greed, and an unquenchable thirst for power. It was also a war in which the world had to contend with the use of nuclear weapons for the very first time. Writing about their use by the United States and contrasting this grave cruelty with the example of the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, Roth Cranston, a prominent 20th century author, wrote in, the, in, in 1949 in his book, World Faith, that Muhammad, peace be upon him, never instigated fighting and bloodshed. Every battle he fought was in rebuttal. He fought defensively in order to survive, uh, to survive, and he fought with the weapons and in the fashion of his time. Then he says, certainly no Christian nation when the time was, the book was written, it was in 1949. He was talking of that time. Certainly no Christian nation of 140 million people who today dispatches 120,000 helpless civilians with a single bomb can look askance at a leader who at his worst killed a bare five or 600. This is not the statement of a Muslim or someone prone to bias. Rather, was made by a fair and respected non-Muslim author. The reality is that the wars taking place today are not fought for religious reasons, but are being fought for geopolitical purposes and for the sake of obtaining wealth and power. At that time of the Second World War, only the United States possessed nuclear weapons. Whereas today, many nations, including some extremely small countries, have acquired them and there is also an increasing risk of such weapons ending up in the hands of trigger-happy terrorist groups. Consequently, there is no question that the world stands on the precipice of a great catastrophe. Storm clouds forwarding, forwarding us of a third world war are getting heavier by the day. The effects of such a war would last for decades to come. Generation after generation of children would more than likely be born crippled or with genetic dis uh, defects due to the lasting effect of the radiation. 
Thus, it is the urgent need of the time for mankind to work towards safeguarding our future. Instead of only blaming Muslims for the global disorder, the world's major powers should also take a step back and look at themselves. Rather than publicly, uh, publicity seeking, politicians sitting there uh, stating their intentions to ban Muslims from entering uh, their nations, the world needs leaders who are sincere in their efforts to bridge the differences that divide us. Instead of coveting the wealth and resources of others, world powers should focus all of their energies on ensuring the con continued prosperity of mankind. Our foremost objectives should be to protect our future generations from the perilous consequences of warfare and bloodshed. Hence, governments and policymakers should realize the immense weight of their duties as uh, custodian of the world. They should strive earnestly to ensure that those who follow us are not born disabled or raised in a broken world, but are born healthy, happy, and into a world of ever greater peace and harmony. This can only happen if absolute justice founded upon a spirit of selflessness prevails over all forms of greed. May Allah grant sense and wisdom to those who have promoted warfare and enable them to understand the consequences of their acts before it is too late. May the people of the world recognize their creator and come to realize the importance of striving for the peace and fulfilling their, the rights of one another. May Allah enable us to all to witness a better and brighter future for mankind. I mean, with these words, I thank you all once again for accepting our invitation this evening. Thank you very much.